coming together and finding a community, even with, with we all are different, is really the key for, I think, humanity evolve and survive. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a suicidal grump has his outlook on life challenged in director Mark Forrester's comedic drama, A Man Called Otto. The film tells the story of Otto, a cantankerous grouch who's given up following the death of his wife. When a new family moves in nearby, he meets his match in Marisol, a quick-witted young woman who challenges him to see life differently leading to an unlikely friendship that turns his world around. In addition to A Man Called Otto, Forster's other directorial credits include the feature films Christopher Robin, World War Z, The Kite Runner, Monster's Ball, and episodes of the series Hand of God. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures for his 2004 feature Finding Neverland. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Forrester spoke with director Taylor Hackford about filming A Man Called Otto. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I, um, I had I watched the film in advance on my computer, then I saw it here. And the thing that's missing is it, it was just my laughter and my tears, but here you can feel what it's like with a real audience, which is fabulous. Um, you know, the, the film, <laughs> I saw it listed as a comedy, and I'm going, it's got comedic elements. It's just such a human drama, wonderful, and the performances are uniformly fantastic, and the direction is beautifully smooth. It moves so seamlessly, but incredible imagination visually and you you make those statements visually uh, without a lot of fanfare but they really work in terms of visual storytelling so mark let's just start with you telling us how you came to this project and and its evolution so the it's based on a book a man called ove a swedish bestseller by frederick beckman and uh, there was a swedish version of the film made and um and which I saw and read the book as well. And uh, Frederick Winstrom, the producer, who I knew before, he made a, uh, a film called Snapper Cash, also a Swedish movie I really liked, and we met way back when. Uh, he, uh, we always you know, wanted to work together on something. And, um, and then Tom and Rita saw the movie, and uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson and wanted to option it and the SF, the Swedish studio said, look, we want to partner up and David McGee, who I did Finding Neverland with, wanted to write it because Otto reminded him of his dad and so it was an all just coincident that we all came together and all were interested in the same same book and, uh, and the same material and we started developing it and David's first draft actually was a really, really incredible draft and that was Christmas uh, four years ago when we all first met, I think maybe a little long, yeah, four years ago. And 
so since then, even you know, with successful book that sold over 10 million copies, with a movie that was made, with the financing in place, from the beginning of the meeting to finishing the movie still took four years. So it's always I, a journey. I think um, when I saw the film, I didn't notice the writing credit. But I thought, because knowing your knowing your work, I said this film has the the touch and the and the drama and the human uh, drama of um, the humanity of finding in Neverland, and it turns out that it's a collaboration between yourself and the same writer, which I thought was just fabulous. You know, in in putting all of these elements together, uh, you know, you you have Tom who is in this film so he's always wonderful but he's so restrained you know he 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 understands that he's the you know it's interesting this film's going to come out right before christmas because you know he's kind of the scrooge of the piece uh but he restrains himself and doesn't change you know you see the evolution happen but even when the evolution happens and he's now somewhat um, you know, part of the family. He still is Otto. He's still reserved. He is the character, which I thought was great. That's got to be a gift. To, and talk about your collaboration with Tom. Yeah. I mean, I must say, as you know, Tom Hanks is for, for me the the most incredible, best actor I've ever worked with. He's not just uh, you know the rumors as he's the nicest person. He's really truly the kindest person. And if you're on a film set and you know often how chaotic it is and how much time pressure you have, he comes in the morning and he doesn't leave set. He stays on set all day long and sits on an apple box or a chair or something. And he doesn't leave and he just sort of meditates in this very still fashion. I've never seen anything like this. Usually movie stars leave the set, they come out, and he just doesn't leave. And he's just there from beginning to end in this meditational state. And then you say, ready, and he does two, three takes, and you said, uh, you know, and I'm try trying to come up with ideas. What can we do better? What can we do different? That's something we have missed. Uh, but you never need more than four takes. <laughs> and it's really extraordinary. And he is so in tune. And sometimes... Uh, when we shot, we shoot like these dialogues, all the dialogue scenes we shot back to back. So sometimes he has like four or five pages or six pages of these really emotional dialogues. And he just goes through them one after the next and just let, and it's, I mean, extraordinary jumping around the script in these different emotional states where he is in. And he is just, I always felt like, I think as a director, you should always, always try to be obviously the radar of trying to what feels truthful to you and what you feel is grounded in reality when you do a piece like this with a character like that. And it felt always that he was truly, I, it's for me hard to detect when, when he was, I, I never felt he was faking it. You know, um, again, letting these comedic moments play, uh, you know, when, uh, and uh, I mean, before we get there, let's talk about the, the, the other casting. You've got Tom Hanks and he's got the central role and it's fantastic. But no one acts alone. And uh, and had you seen uh, Mariana Trevino's work before? No, I haven't. Francine Mazer, the casting director, uh, I said, look, the key role really is is Marisol's role. And then she said, in the original movie, by the way, in the Swedish book, she's a 
Persian and we made her Hispanic and Mexican. And so she said, uh, look, I, I said, that's the, really the key role, one of the key roles opposite him. So she said, look, I found someone you should look at. So she sends me this audition and, um, uh, and it's like an actress, Mariana, on a cell phone and she's talking straight into the cell phone in a hotel room and she's doing the lines that say at the door, she's doing the scene, but she's not doing just her scene, she's also doing Tom's lines and, and her husband's lines and I'm looking at it and I said, what's she doing? And she doesn't have anybody can read opposite her, so she's just doing all three characters and, and she is hilarious and I said, and she's like, like keeps on talking to the cell phone and I said, I mean, this is genius. I don't need to see someone else. And then the ca- and Francine said, no, no, you have to see some- at least someone, one other person. So I saw someone else, an Argentinian actress, and I said, no, no, we, we just, I, I, I don't have to see anybody else. And I showed her to, to, to everyone else, and, and Tom got super excited. And everybody, once you, we saw that tape, it's almost should be, I feel like should be posted on YouTube or something, because I have never seen an audition like that from anybody. And she obviously had a very... Uh, successful career in Mexico already as a as a comedian, but she's uh, she's very very special. I mean, I think uh, that those moments are you know in a director's life are amazing when you uh, you think oh gee this is a really important role but who could play it? Mm-hmm. It's very specific, and then someone comes and just nails it, and you think yes, I felt there very is blessed. a god. <laughs> I felt very blessed finding her. <laughs> And let's talk about the young Tom Hanks in this film and how you found him. And, of course, he's a relative, but he's a, non, he's a non-pro. Yeah, Truman, is. Uh, he wants to be a, be a DP, so he never acted before. And I just felt that he... Um, I was looking at actors, and I just felt that I saw pictures of, uh, of him and online, and I, I asked Rita... Uh, and Tom's mentioning, you know, he's not going to do it. He, and I said, well, can't he just read it? And can he just read it? So I said, no, uh, he doesn't want to act. He, is, he grew up with that. He wants to be a DP. So we met, I said, I, let's just kind of meet him. So we met in New York. And he just reminded me visually, like when, uh, when Tom did Big or these movies in the, all these movies in the 80s. And um, so we met in New York, and he was really just... Uh, I felt just very natural. I said, "Look, you just have to be very natural. You don't have to do much." And he said, and he looked at me, "What were you talking about?" And, and so after it, so I, I convinced him to be in it, and and I think he did really a tremendous job. And I think it was also beautiful, obviously, because it's father son, and uh, and I think he probably never wants to act again. But <laughs> if if he does, uh, that would be lovely because I do think he is very very talented. It's really wonderful in the sense that, you know, you know Otto is unique and strange in his, in his age, in his old age. Um, but when you, it worked. Because when you see the young Otto, you know, he, he obviously, he's influenced by his own father, but he's so reserved. So you could see the kind of person he was going to become and why that meeting that, you know, Sonia was so important to him. Yeah, and, and Rachel Keller, the actress who plays Sonia, is very, very talented. And she really just gave him also a lot in those scenes together and made him feel secure and made him feel like, uh, and because she, she's a real chameleon and was able to, to, to make, make, make Truman, I think, very comfortable and welcome as well. I think that while we're on that subject, I think the flashbacks, you know, having to, it, it, you know, sometimes when um, a film is being made and they bookend 
Oh, here's a time period. Now we're flashing back or flashing forward. And then you end the film in that same context of time. You know, that that's a nice thing to do and it can work. But when you've got to flash back and forth throughout an entire film uh, and tell the story and tell the backstory, that's a very uh, delicate and difficult thing to do. And I think you did it beautifully. Talk about that. Thank you. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, in the original film, the, the flashbacks are much longer. So they, 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 they go for on for a long time. And then, uh, and it was interesting. So, uh, in, in our film, we decided to make them a little shorter. Also, I was thinking I'm, I'm working with Tom. So I felt I wanted to have in more, <laughs> that as much as I can get of, of Tom into the film and, and into Otto, because it's also a little bit more like the book. And it was interesting with Frederick, uh, Beckman saw the movie, he said, Oh, and he loves both movies, but he felt, Oh, you were sticking a little bit more to the book versus the, the, the first one. And it, it was a tricky one because you, you usually, you know, the, when is the in and out of the flashbacks? It's the transition coming in and out and when are the emotional right moments? And obviously it's uh, in the moment when he's, uh, you know, he, when he's trying to, at the edge of, of wanting to take his own life or in those moments it's an easier transition. But then we have these other transitions too that just uh, trigger these memories and, and to, you know, often tell the story to understand Otto better of where he is now and where, where, he, has came, where he has come from. When you uh, do a film like this, and you did it in Pittsburgh, yeah. which worked beautifully, I think. You know, it's, it's, you know, you're talking about America, but a different... You know, we, we are jaded um, at the coasts and realize that there's another America, and this is beautifully. But you, you spread over the seasons. So what was your shooting schedule that allowed you to get dry and snowy and all those things in between? Um, we started in February and we ended up in the spring in April, but I must say the weather was very challenging in Pittsburgh and sometimes, like for instance, the scene where, where he throws the paper on the ground wasn't written in the snow with the bicycle, but it just showed up in the morning and it was snowing heavily so I had to shoot the whole entire scene in the snow so the weather was very finicky and on and off and so we had to just deal with it in some of the moments we had to you know finish up some we had some snow we had to shovel on the ground and then finish the background with visual effects or moments like that but uh, i must say it was very very challenging <laughs> it is it is when but you know you you see things um where you you know it the 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 time period of this of the story is supposed to be over things and you know it's always you know, they've, they've, you see it, it's dry, it's nice, and they shot. They obviously shot it in the summer. And you could say, no, 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 that didn't take place over two or three years. So you're, in a way, as painful as it may be, you're lucky that you got all these different time periods because I truly believed, you know, time had passed. And you have that beautiful shot at the end, which is, you know, a, a, a effect shot of the, of, the, of the pickup going and the seasons changing. And you realize that, you know, he did have some time with, that, with his, his surrogate family before he passed, which is, which is lovely. Yeah, exactly, and that's why at the end we also put those pictures and end credits that you feel there yeah. was this time you had. I'm glad you picked up on that, yeah. yeah. Was... No, it's, uh, it's just, it's one of those films that you look at and its simplicity, you know, can fool you because, uh, but I think what's truly great is that you didn't hang by your ceiling uh, and dangle down with the camera saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, I admire that kind of filmmaking. And uh, at the same time, to be able to elicit emotions 
which mm -hmm. this film does, uh, is is a true, you know, gift. So, thank you. Um, I I don't want to hog the the Q and A. I always open it up for a couple of questions. Is anybody out there interested in asking um, Mark any questions? Yes. Um, Barbara Ling, our production designer, and I, we had an early conversation, you know, of what sort of I was in my head and what, what we're looking for. And uh, I wanted to have a cul-de-sac, obviously, and have the houses mirror each other and have the, uh, with the gate we built in there at the end of the street. But so we had the location scouts going out to look for it because obviously that was the most important uh, as you said, character missing and actually gave me the most anxiety trying to find it. And then the location scouts just couldn't come back with something satisfactory. And, and Barbara somehow went, was very simple, but went on Google Earth and just started looking at roads. And then she found on Google Earth the street and said, look at this street, why don't we look at this street? And uh, so we went to see it, and it was perfect. And, and the person who owned the, he owned the entire street, he just purchased it, and, um, and it came to be that his wife's favorite actor was Tom Hanks. So, so he was very willing, and, uh, and everybody who lived there, they were very, very cooperative and, and very loving. And, and, he had, uh, and the two houses actually opposite one another were empty as well. It was also a very bizarre coincidence. The house Tom is in and the house Mariana is in, both were vacated. And so we repainted it the color I sort of envisioned and, and redid some work on the, on the road. And, and that's how it came about. That's called unbelievable luck. <laughs> yes. yes. Any others? Yes. Uh, I, we, we, I rehearsed it for like probably a week. We went through all, all the, you know, we did pretty much just read throughs and saw how the, the scenes read and, and some of them, some of the, the scenes in the neighborhood, I, I blocked them a little bit, uh, brought Mariana and Tom there and Manuel, the, the cast, and we blocked it a little bit and got, got a little bit of a feeling. And um, so that was, was approximately, uh, you know, a, a week. But, and then when we got to the storyboards, I only, you know, I, I only storyboarded sort of the flashbacks moments of the movie. So especially the transitions in and out and, and uh, sort of that was the key for me. And then some of the, you know, the, the sequence on the, on, the trains, on the train station and the sequence um, at, uh, you know, at the beginning of the movie. So, but throughout the sort of the more traditional scenes, I didn't storyboard because uh, usually I only do scenes where I feel like everybody has to be in the loop and understand where my mind is at. And, uh, but sort of the traditional sort of conversational coverage I keep loose because then I get too stuck with the storyboard and I want to keep, keep sort of the magic, trying to keep the magic going. And once I get the, too locked into storyboards, I feel that I would lose that. I don't know how you feel, but, uh, uh, you know, I, at the very beginning of your career, you oftentimes storyboard. Um, I storyboard every scene in my first film. But the problem that happens is that you story, you know, you've thought about five or six ways to shoot a scene and then you storyboard it. But when you go to the set and, you, and you're in the situation, you may think of another. But the, the people on the crew oftentimes go, no, 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 you can't do that. You, this is a storyboard. It becomes the Bible. You say, no, no, it's not the Bible. I may think of a better way to shoot. <laughs> to yeah, shoot. It's good to shoot action and effects. I mean, to storyboard action and effects. But yes. 
that, that's that's what that pretty much did is action effects in in sort of the the flashbacks. But as you just said, I think often you discover things in scenes, and I wanted to discover Otto and these moments between all the other characters and go moment to moment more than than being locked down in storyboards. Any others? Yes. The, the train station is there. Uh, yes. So the, the train station is in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a I thought that was a particularly lovely, uh, you know, the, the image of that train. And it did feel period, but it also could fit contemporary. I mean, I don't want to get into the logistic trying to get that train on that, on, onto that train station. That was a whole other craziness. <laughs> the line producer was about to kill me. And then I once said, I said, I really need some shots also of the exterior of the train with, with, with a drone. So, uh, so, she, so that the exterior of the of drone, we went for a weekend and, and we, 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 that there was this private railroad they had and and sort of, and we shot that train on that railroad, and and then I just saw the spot where it right was the bridge. I said, "Oh, that looks pretty. Let's get, let's step out." And we stepped out of the train, and we stopped out, and there was sort of like this this barn there. And I look on the ground, and I see all these this ammunition and the shells on the ground. And I realized it has like his own private backyard shooting range here. And I think I hope nobody's at home, and he's gonna like suddenly shoot at us while we're shooting the train. <laughs> so, yes. I, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I think it's important to keep the, uh, the, the, ser the seriousness of the situation. But at the same time, I thought uh, for it's important that, that there is, is this balance of, of that ultimately, he, you know, it's a life-affirming film. He finds community. He is a, he will, uh, out of his loneliness. And I, I think, you know, partly that was one of the reasons I wanted to make of this film because it's life-affirming. And I feel like in the times we live in, there's so many people that are lonely. And I feel like bringing people together, it's often just the community they need around them. And I think that was sort of the key that, that uh, I wanted to, I didn't want to go too dark. I thought it was important to keep the humor. And the book is very much like that, to be honest. Frederick Buckman's, if you ever read the book or the original film, has that similar uh, balance. So it's not something I invented. It's really just trying to, to be true to the book. And, and it's, uh, but I, I feel like uh, what, what I loved about the book, and I think even more that now than when it came out, we live in such a diverse, diversive times that I think coming together and finding a community, even with, with we all are different, is really the key for, I think, humanity evolve and survive, you know? So I think that that's what I, what I really love about the story as well, as sort of this life-affirming coming together of a community with all these different, you know, char characters. I, I, I have to second that. Uh, a film like this, which is about people coming together, people who seem to be hopeless and discovering that life is worth living, um, is, is a particular message at this point in time that uh, is, is long overdue. So it's, uh, hopefully that audience will find this film because uh, you know I, I still believe in the power of film and the power of film to change people's hearts and minds. And uh, this film speaks beautifully about what this country, you know, can be and, and, and should be. Um, anybody else? Yes. Yeah, yes. The cat's name was Schmegel. And, and Schmegel, Schmegel was sometimes performed and sometimes didn't, you know? 
hard, hard to direct. <laughs> but, and, and sometimes, uh, but I must say, Schmegel, most of the time we had a whole separate green screen sh shoot with the cat because it's very hard to make a VFX cat. And I feel like they always take me out of movies. So we literally, like, uh, I would say 85 to 90% of, of what you see in there is, is Schmegel, is the real cat do doing it. And he is, it was very, sometimes very chill and lit literally did, did everything the trainer said. And the next day, just got up and walked out, and that was it. No more Schnegel. We had to keep shooting. <laughs> and then we had to do a pickup on a green screen day. And then we had, I think, numerous, numerous cat green screen days, numerous, to get Schnegel. When he was in the mood, you got, you got a scene. Then the next day, you got another scene. Yeah. So on and off. <laughs> you know, anyone who has worked with animals and made films with animals knows um, you know, <laughs> as Mark's saying, sometimes you're in control, sometimes you're not. Yes. And the actors all have to be, um, if there's an ensemble scene where there's many actors and an animal or more, yeah. they have to work with the animal handlers who are just off camera doing all their things to, to, <laughs> keep, <laughs> to keep their, uh, you know, their actors, the animals in place. And it, it takes a, you know, it, 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 everybody has to kind of come together and understand that if somebody in, in a normal instance was off camera making all these little hand signals and so forth, that most actors would go, you know, go crazy, but they can't because that actor, that animal actor is in the scene also. Uh, how about anyone else? Good. Um, I just wanted to say that, that, uh, Mark and I met, you know, right after his first film, in the United States, Monsters Ball, and he's telling me, you know, here he is, uh, you know, new to the States. Well, he went to NYU, so he's not new to the States. But he's, you know, this is a big opportunity. It was a low-budget film, and, and a film called Monsters Ball, which is a wonderful film. But anyway, he's, he's, uh, uh, he's out there kind of desperately, I, I, need, you know, I, I need this and that. And his first day of shoot, he's with a producer, and they... And, and, and there, he's, you know, early, you know, and he's out. He wants to find locations. But, of course, the producer says, no, no, no. We can't location scout until I have the right outfit. <laughs> they have to wait for his store to open in order for him to buy an outfit so they can go scouting. And Mark kind of looked at me like, is that what Hollywood is like? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was funny. I remember that very well. <laughs> That day, you have to go to the Gap. I said the Gap. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, but listen, uh, I think that um, the the interesting thing, the things that I know, uh, you know, over the course, and it's important to talk about the beginnings. And Mark did, made a wonderful film. Um, uh, you know, his first film in America. But you know, you you go through various things, and uh, and uh, you know, talk about what you did this the past pandemic because I have personal knowledge of the fact that he's got another film in the wings uh, that, that is still yet to come out. Yeah, I did a movie actually before this one called White Bird coming out in, in next third quarters, I think the end of August, September next year, and it's actually starring Taylor's wife, Helen Mirren, 
but very blessed to ha work with her. And and that that film uh, is has a lot of heart and kindness. I'm very happy that I you know was able to work through the pandemic, uh, uh, making two movies. I don't want anything up my nose again. For like, <laughs> I think I got more COVID tested than than anyone I ever met. <laughs> but uh, I was felt very blessed making those two movies. And it was interesting we just spoke because the other movie I shot in Prague and Taylor came with Helen to when Helen was working there to visit. And we just spoke about it because Prague was completely empty and usually it's so full of tourists and the country was locked. And I felt like the sort of, it was, was very uh, sort of just this, 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 the city that was almost uh, like a ghost town. And it was really beautiful because it was in the winter as well and the snow was falling. And so, no, I just felt very blessed making two movies during these very difficult times. Well, um, please tell your friends about this film. Um, because it's, as I said, it, I think it touches both this and this. And, uh, and it's always a, uh, a pleasure to meet with Mark, who I think is a true talent. So, and, no, thank you, Taylor. And I also just, and I want to thank you also, Renee Wolf, who is one of the producers and my creative partner here. And that her, without her, we wouldn't have been able to do this. Thanks, Taylor, for being here and doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.